have been studying the Beatitudes, and so this morning I am going to read the Beatitudes to you again from Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. I had thought as we were just singing and as I was examining my own heart, just as we're in worship here, before we even get into everything, if you wonder why it's so hard to transition into a worship service from your regular daily life, sometimes you come on a Sunday and you're like, I'm not feeling it. You just feel detached. You just feel like you can't get into it. Uh, you just feel like you don't want to sing or you are singing. You feel like, oh, I'm just kind of mouthing the words. Today has a lot to do with that. It, we shouldn't be surprised if throughout our week, if we're feeding on all other kinds of things and not feeding on Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised to find when we show up to worship service, we can't just flip it on like a switch. We might tend to think of ourselves like that TV remote we can turn on or that computer button, but it's asleep, you just hit the space bar, it comes back on. We tend to start thinking of ourselves that we're like those machines. We can just be flipped on as soon as we come into worship service. And we shouldn't think like that. What we're feeding on fills us and drives us. And so we get into this today, and maybe to, for to you today, you're kind of like, I'm not feeling the worship. Maybe let's look at our own lives and see, what are you feeding on throughout the week? We've got to almost get ourselves ready for worship. Work ourselves up into a lather, whether it's praying or, or, or reading. Spending time with the Lord. Well, just a side thought. I'm so glad to be back with you today after a couple weeks away. Robin and I and the kids were totally blessed to have a rejuvenating time a couple weeks away. We spent one week in Texas with Bill and Janet May, maybe they're watching online, I don't know. We had a great time with them. They were former attenders here at Bethany who moved to Texas. We just relaxed and basically spent an entire week submerged in water in their pool, which was fun, and then a week at home. Uh, and I so enjoyed starting our Beatitude series a few weeks back that I was a bit um, sort of jealous to hand it off to the guys I did, but I'm so thankful for Tony Freitas, one of our elders, and Ray Keene, the Candy Center um, director, for taking a couple Sundays. So real quick, a little intro. Remember, we've been discussing the Beatitudes. They are um, words from Jesus in Matthew, the Beatitudes. Uh, sorry, let me get 
pretty quick here. Things are too windy up here. Um, the Beatitudes, remember, we've been talking about them, and we're looking at them not as a moral to-do list, like a, some kind of checklist, not as something that can be humanly produced or manufactured. We're going a little recap here. They're not natural, but only come to a person that has had an operation of grace upon them. That's our subtitle for this series. They're characteristics and ambitions of citizens of an upside-down kingdom, describing an otherworldly happiness, and most importantly, the Beatitudes do not describe the way into the kingdom. Do this and you will be blessed. No, they describe someone who's actually already in the kingdom. The blessed live this way. Someone who's already in the kingdom. So this morning, we tackle verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger, thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied, filled up. And as the Beatitudes up to this point have been about emptying ourselves out, poor in spirit, mourning meekness, now all of a sudden they turn to, about, uh, to being about being filled up. Being filled up. From emptying out, now to being satisfied is the word Jesus uses. You know, I'm a big music fan. And I've often wondered, uh, as I think about music and some of the, the bands I like, I've often wondered, and maybe you have too, how long can the Rolling Stones keep it up, do you think? How long? You know, they have, they've had multiple flirtations with retirement, but they just can't seem to hang it up. You know, it's one thing to work a 9-to-5 job into your late 70s. It's quite another thing to be strutting across the stage playing rock and roll in your late 70s. They're entirely different. And I have to wonder, is it possible that since they have achieved the fullness of of this iconic status of, of rock star life and fame, they can't imagine letting it go because in it they find their righteousness. In the iconic adulation of fans, they feel secure, that they're acceptable, that they matter. Look what we've accomplished. How can I let it go? And to let it go to, to would be the release of what's given their life fullness and happiness and, dare I say, satisfaction. Some of you know that. And what is so revealing to us is that we get it. I get it. You get it. We understand why they wouldn't want to let it go. Because too many times we define happiness and satisfaction as something we've achieved, something you've accomplished, valuable, something valuable or prestigious or memorable. We define happiness by that, something that to be envied. Satisfaction comes from getting something. Something we want. And then holding on to it for dear life as hard as we can. Whether it's career, relationship, a finally quiet and peaceful retirement, the right weight, whatever it is. And we get it and we hold on to it and we're not willing to let it go. Because if I do, will I still matter? Will I still measure up? Will I, still, will I still be worth something? You know, it's finally in my clutches, and we feel like you have to pry this thing out of my dead fingers. I've got it. I have it. That's how we define many times happiness, what we do have. Because if I do let it go, will I still matter? In our world, here's how we define Remember these upside-down values? In our world, we, it's those who have. It's those who are full who are to be happy 
to be emulated. But in the upside-down world of Beatitudes, it's those who desperately long for and, and those who are hungry for something greater than themselves. Those are the ones to be emulated and, and those are the ones who will be truly satisfied. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's the starving who are happy, Jesus says. It's the starving. It's the have-nots rather than the haves who are blessed and to be content and to be joyful, Jesus says in this beatitude this morning. Satisfaction actually comes, he says, from a hunger for righteousness. Talk about a countercultural message. Talk about a message of an upside-down kingdom. So this morning we're going to feed on five steps that kind of lead to this happiness as we unpack this verse. So hopefully you got your outline and grab it and have your Bibles open to Matthew 5 as we begin by looking at this first step. Here's what it is. Number one is, when you hunger and thirst for happiness, you'll never find happiness because you bypass your true need. When you hunger and thirst for happiness, you'll never find it because you bypass your true need. As we work through this verse this morning, we're going to take each part and word, and as we do, you're going to see a logical procession through these five steps. The best way to work through this verse is really just unpack the parts of it. So we're going to do that. Our first one is returning to this word, blessed or happiness. You know, hunger and thirst, if you think about them, they are our most common desires, aren't they? Some of them. Maybe next to sleep. We have this inner sense to fill our stomachs with food and to drink to quench our thirst. I mean, from the rich to the poor, to the animal kingdom, to the plant kingdom, all around the world, hunger and thirst are the great equalizer. We all have it. We all feel it. It's universal. It's a reminder of our, uh, our ongoing need of sustenance. And in Jesus' day, many people lived hand to mouth. No Costco, right? <laughs> no Freddy's. No refrigeration. Think about that. It was a different world. And many times they would make journeys even through the desert with probably not enough water to get from point A to point B, hoping they'd get some along the way somewhere. They understood what it meant more than we do to hunger and thirst. I mean, we get irritated, right, when we're told we have to stop eating or drinking at uh, 12 p.m. midnight for the surgery the next day, right? That's what? What? But the inner emptiness and restlessness and that true hunger and thirst, it might be a little harder for us to understand than in Jesus' day when he spoke these words. A longing to be filled, a longing to be happy and content and blessed. We understand that. A longing to be happy. I think we can all understand that. A longing to be content. We all get that if the hunger and thirst part is hard for us. I mean, it is the great drive and motivation behind most of our choices, really, blessedness, happiness, contentment, behind our ambition, we want, we want the satisfaction. This verse speaks of the satisfaction. The stones spoke of that satisfaction. They got it. So hunger in itself isn't bad. The problem is we just don't know where to be filled. And so we hunger and thirst for happiness itself. When Jesus says, he doesn't say, he doesn't say hunger and thirst for happiness. He says hunger and thirst for righteousness, and this will bring blessedness. But most of the world isn't doing this. 
they're seeking happiness and we do a lot of times as an end in and of itself. It's the one thing we desire and so what ends up happening? We never end up getting it. Why? Because all of those things we end up chasing that we think will finally make us right, give us purpose, make up us happy, what do they do? They always end up disappointing us. We're disappearing in the end anyways. Like the moment you wake up from that wonderful dream you've been having and have reality come crashing back in. The Bible never tells us to pursue happiness in and of itself. Do you know that? It always is the byproduct of seeking something else. And when we put happiness as our greatest need, we end up missing our true need. That's why it can never be fulfilled just by seeking happiness in and of itself. We end up bypassing our greater need. Here's an example. It's when we visit the doctor. And you've got some pain going on, right? And you go in and they just might say, oh, you know, they're just dismissive and they prescribe some pill for the pain. We say, well, wait a minute. Doctor, what's the cause? What's the cause? You know, I, I, I'm glad you're going to give me a pill, but that's just going to mask the symptom, isn't it? I want to know what the cause is. Imagine a doctor you went to and she was only concerned with relieving pain if you visit her. That was it. Well, let's just get rid of the pain. Oh, here's a couple pills. Take twice a day. You'll be fine. No, her job is to discover the cause. The symptom of the pain is actually a, a blessing in disguise. It's hard to say that, but it's a blessing in disguise. It points to the cause. The doctor's job is to find the cause. Her job is to discover the cause. So we want the doctor to do what? treat the actual problem, the disease. Not just the issue, not just the symptom, not just the pain. When we search for ha just for happiness as an end in itself, we never find it. Because we never search for the true cause of our unhappiness, our restlessness. As, as Augustine said, he said, Thou madest for thyself, and our heart is restless until it rest in thee. Or C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Or to put it in the context of Beatitudes, made for otherworldly gospel ambitions and desires. And here Jesus says the desire is for righteousness. And if that is the desire of your heart, then blessedness and happiness will follow and be a byproduct of seeking that first. That's our first step. We can't just go to happiness because it's just treating the symptom without the cause of our unrestlessness. Here's our second step. What's this hunger then? Before we unpack the righteousness, we've got to talk about this hunger. The hunger and thirst is this, to see your continual desperate need for the one thing you truly don't have and can't supply. So before we unpack it, that, as I said, that righteousness, we've got to look at what does it mean to hunger and thirst a little more. This is so practical because it gets right to the heart of the issue, or I guess we could say the stomach of the issue for us today, the stomach what, of what Jesus wants for us. Hunger and thirst come and go, don't they? 
They come and they go, those desires. You're working out in the yard in this 85-degree weather we're going to have today. You're sweating and you're thirsty. You run inside. And what do you do? You pour yourself a tall glass of cold water and you guzzle it down and you're satisfied. Your thirst is gone. You sit down at dinner and a great meal and you're, you're stuffed at the end of the meal. Pull yourself back to the table. I can't do another bite. Satisfied. I'm stuffed. These are all momentary desires, aren't they? That you yourself can fill. Or if you're a child, somebody who's taking care of you, our kids, they can feed you dinner, can't they, if you're hungry? They give you a glass of water or juice if you're thirsty. But this really doesn't get at the desperation and continual longing Jesus is getting at here. Because we truly don't understand hunger and thirst in our culture today. They did. What have you hungered or longed for? Ask yourself that question. What have you truly hungered or longed for? I just finished reading a, a novel by the philosopher Albert Camus called The Plague. I mentioned it in one of our videos this week. Really fitting to our time. It almost feels like reading a novel out of 2020, <laughs> as you hear what it's about. The story of an unknown narrator who was writing about a massive bubonic plague that hits the French town of Oran in Algeria, northern Africa. And it's so fascinating in this novel because each of the five main characters reveal what they are hungry for, what they are longing for by the deprivation of that thing that this epidemic, this plague brings along. And then the subsequent, in the book anyways, the subsequent lockdown that happens, sound familiar? <laughs> lockdown of this town that removes the thing they really hunger for. As I said, it was like reading a novel set in 2020, even though it was written, in, I think, after post-World War II. And for the character Raymond Rambert, he shows us a hunger that we can understand as I was reading through it. His hunger is for a person. It's for a relationship. It's for the love for his wife. He's a Parisian journalist who gets trapped in the city of Oran as he was visiting there. After the plague starts, the city gates get shut. He's trapped there. His wife is trapped in Paris for months and months and months before FaceTime or Zoom. And his hunger for her, for love, for a significant person, for his wife, causes him to go to desperate means to escape the town that shut its doors. And he goes to legal and illegal means. And he's delayed over and over and over again in the book when his plot to escape is put on hold. And the main character, his name's Rue, he's an atheist doctor who's taking care of all these plague-sick people. In the story, he cites the reunion of Rambert and his wife as the possible proof that a love fulfilled just may bring someone satisfaction, fullness, thirst and Rambert is waiting for her on the train station platform as the city is reopened. She catches the first train in, and the narrator says this. With his arms locked around her, she kind of caught him off guard and just tackled him basically on the train station. As his, with his arms locked around her, he let his tears flow freely, unknowing if they rose from present joy 
or from sorrow too long repressed, hunger, desire. Aware only that they'd prevent his making sure if the face buried in the hollow of his shoulder was the face of which he dreamed so often, or instead a stranger's face. For the moment, he wished to behave like all those others around him who believed or made believe, that plague could come and go without changing anything in men's hearts. Plague impacts our hearts. Epidemic and the deprivation of things we hunger for impacts us, as it did this man in the book, especially when it's people and love and acceptance we desire and hunger for. We know that feeling. This is closer to the hunger and thirst that Jesus is talking about. The desire of a person and the uneasiness and the longing and hunger that's present until there's a, a being united. But the hunger here that we're to have, like that type of hunger, is for righteousness, is for goodness. A continual, desperate need is what Jesus is getting at here. The psalmist helps us here. It was, one of our, it was in our call to worship, Psalm 63. Oh God, my God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Or Psalm 42, that I read in our prayer. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. So hopefully we're getting a sense of what this kind of longing looks like. It's not just the desire for a bowl of ice cream 10 o'clock at night you can get from your freezer. It's not that. As strong as that desire might be, right? That's a pretty strong desire sometimes. But there's a predicament. The very thing you need and Jesus wants you to have, you truly don't have. And you cannot supply on your own righteousness. So let's look at it. What is it? What is it? What exactly are we to hunger for? It's our third step. Righteousness is to be right with God, rid of sin, and relationally holy. It's comprehensive. That's our point. Right with God, rid of sin, relationally holy. It's comprehensive. You know, when we think of our own righteousness, we might be tempted here to think of Jesus saying, well, just be a good person. A and righteousness does refer to that. It's doing right things. It does refer to that. Living rightly, righteously kind of life that reflects God's goodness. It is that. But when we think about our own righteousness, at least I do, I tend to look at it as if comparing it to others. Others around me. Others on Facebook. Others in my family. Others at work. That's how I think about my righteousness. Like comparing to other people. I'm not like him. I would never say what she said. I wouldn't go there well, at least I'm competent enough to fill in the blank, right? See, I'm good. You're good a lot of times when we look at our comparison to other people. The problem for us is here. When we look at our sin and our righteousness that way, it's again just looking for a quick fix and happiness by just dealing with the symptom, not looking at the root cause. 
We just say, ah, I'm better than him. Ah, you know, I would never say what she said. I, I, I can take, at least I'm competent enough to do that. It's, again, just going to the symptom rather than the root cause. Just remember, like, remember looking for happiness rather than seeking something else or a true need. And how much goodness would it take anyways? <laughs> how much goodness would it take? As this Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of God and being part of it and entering it. How much goodness would it take? You know, Jesus helps us out. He lets us know in the very same sermon. Did you know that? A couple verses down from verse 6. Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, Well, how much? I'll tell you. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven, he says. They're pretty good guys. Right living. Verse 48, he said this, Therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What kind of righteousness? Perfection. Perfection. See, our goodness is compared not to others, but it's compared to God. The standard of goodness. And our sin then is what separates us from, separates us from him. It's repugnant to him. It has to be. It's repugnant to him like the cancer is to the cancer patient that's eating his body. Sin's a cancer. It has to be repugnant to him. He's watching it eat up his creatures. So first then, righteousness is a desire to be, let's talk about it, right with God by getting rid of the sin that separates us from him. That means a right standing with him, a right position with him. The Bible calls this justification. It takes place when Jesus pays for your sins at the cross, making a legal payment for your wrongdoing. So that God can remove them from your record. A right standing with God. But it's more than that too. Because it contains the desire to not only to get rid of the sin that separates us from God. But it also means the desire to be free from the, the power of sin in your life. To have that desire. A hatred of sin. This person realizes that when he or she comes to the attitudes, he's living in a world that doesn't look like this. And in fact, he looks at the Beatitudes and realizes, I don't have these gospel ambitions. And in fact, I have the ambition and desire to sometimes do the very opposite thing of what I see Jesus saying here. But it even goes further than being right with God and getting rid of sin and getting rid of the desire for sin. Those are all kind of negative presentations of it. It also is positively presented as being relationally holy, we say in our point, point three. What does that mean? What does that mean, to be relationally holy? To be positively holy? It means that you want to be so like God, or Christ our Savior, and walk in fellowship and relationship and deepness and oneness with him that you would say to my soul pants for you, God. That's what I hunger for. This is the fellowship, remember, from our first John series. We talked about this fellowship a lot in there. John did too in the little letter we went through. He said, fellowship, have fellowship with me, 
like I have with the Father and with his son Jesus. That makes our joy complete. Remember he said in 1 John, walking with God with whom there is no darkness, John said. It's to hunger and thirst, to put it positively now, for comprehensive perfection. There's really no other way to put it. We have a problem here, don't we? We have a problem here, don't we? We look at this beatitude. This is something we don't have. This is something you cannot manufacture on your own. So Jesus presents to us a problem that you and I have no solution. It's sure not going to just be a bowl of ice cream at 10 o'clock, is it? So how do we find this fullness and this satisfaction if it can't be cooked on the stovetop or come out of a tap. How do we find it? Here's point four. Satisfaction comes from knowing and resting in righteousness that is received, not achieved. Here's the answer. Satisfaction comes from receiving it, not achieving it. It's not surprising, and it shouldn't be, that from a God who is holy, 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 as Isaiah says, that he would require that same standard from us. But this is exactly where Jesus wants us to be. Jesus is saying here something far more radical than, hey, pursue a good moral life and you'll be blessed and happy. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. He's not saying achieve this kind of righteousness and you'll be filled. All right, now get to it. He's actually saying, this is the kind of goodness that can't be achieved. It's got to be received. It's a free gift of grace, in other words. If you are starving, I mean really starving, do you have time to go out and plant a garden? Wait for it to grow? No. Do you have time to dig a well if you're thirsty? I mean really thirsty, about to die from thirst. No, what do you do? You cry out for it. You beg for it on the street even if you're that hungry. You look for the quickest way to get what you need to prolong your life if you're that hungry or thirsty. This is the empty spiritual belly that Jesus calls blessed. When you come to see that unless someone else gives you this kind of comprehensive perfection, you will die. Satisfaction then begins to come only when you see then that this is something only God can give us. It's the righteousness that only comes from Christ. Do you know 2 Corinthians 5.21? That's a verse you should. It's one you should circle, you should highlight it, you should tab that page in your Bible says this, God made him who had no sin be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Simple verse, but the theological truth, theologians call it big words, but we'll, we'll unpack it. They basically call it double imputation, double to imputation, giving something, somebody, something to somebody else, applying it to them, crediting it to them. It's the truth. Here's what I mean. 
that you can only enjoy God's presence or be filled up or be satisfied if he not only attributes your sin to Jesus Christ, that's one, but double, right? But that he also attributes to you, imputes to you, credits to you, gives you Jesus' righteousness. Double. Sins paid, his righteousness to you. This is the side that not enough Christians think about or look at. We understand this first side. He takes my sins. We don't think about the second half of verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. And many times we present a truncated, cut-in-half gospel when we leave this part out. I like to illustrate it with a coin. I may have done this with us before. Maybe I have, maybe not. It's a fake coin I found in a cereal box in 1993. It's been in my wallet for 30 years almost. I don't know why. I keep it in there because it reminds me of that. It makes a good noise when you flip it. But a coin helps with this illustration. Two sides to a coin, isn't there? Two sides. The first side is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The first side to this coin. He credited, God credited our sins to him when he died on the cross for us. He took the punishment we deserve. He paid it. He justified us. But if that was all God did, the first side of this coin, how would that leave us in his eyes? I think just morally neutral. Sins have been paid for, great. But then we're just morally neutral in his eyes. No, we, what do we need, though, does the, the Beatitude tell us? We need comprehensive perfection. Not just morally neutral. We need comprehensive perfection. So we look at the other side of the coin. What does Jesus say, or what does Hebrews say? Without holiness, no one will see God. So it's the other side of the same coin in the gospel. In him, not only will he pay for our sins, but in him we will become the righteousness of God, Second Corinthians says. So the other side of the coin is that he credits all of Jesus' goodness, all of Jesus' perfection, all of Jesus' law-keeping, all of Jesus' active and passive obedience to you. That's the other side of the coin. So he accepts you and treats you as he does his very own son, Jesus. He fills your bank account with an infinite amount of goodness, and it will never run out as he looks at you. This is the one that's harder for us to accept, isn't it? I'll take he paid for my sins. Okay, I know that. I'll take it. This one's harder for us to accept because we are so wired to achieve our own righteousness. We're wired that way, the human heart. We want to add something to what Christ has done. Christ plus, Christ plus, Christ plus, when it's Christ is everything. Christ is all your righteousness. He's all your goodness. Trying to add something to what Christ has done is like trying to drink salt water to quench your thirst. You know, it's, it's tricking yourself. It's making you think you're quenching your thirst. And what does drinking salt water do? Make you more, it'll kill you really, but make you more thirsty. Make you more thirsty. It only tricks you into thinking you're okay. Or another objection to this double imputation is that, well, if that's the case, that I'm accepted on all of Jesus' goodness, then where's my motivation to be righteous then? I've lost all motivation to be good. And if that's your thought, you show you don't understand that true righteousness can never, ask to, can never only come 
can only ever come actually from a heart that is absolutely accepted in Jesus, in resting in Jesus. If you pursue righteousness for fear of losing God, your motive is only self-preservation. Your motive is only self-preservation. But when you find rest and satisfaction of having received the second side of the coin, his righteousness, and not having to achieve it but receive it, it creates a hunger for real righteousness. That's real biblical sanctification. It creates a real hunger for real righteousness that can never be truly satisfied, and that's where the blessedness comes in. Here's our final step. We live in a tension. We live in the tension as Christians of blessedness that is found in living in the simultaneous tension of hunger and satisfaction. In this circular kind of movement in our life of hunger, satisfaction. Hunger, satisfaction. Because the more you realize the depth of the saving work of Jesus for you, the more you want of Him. They grow together. The more you want to please Him, the more you want to be actually holy for Him because you know you're wholly secure in Him. They go together. Not just positionally now, but actually holy. You want to grow. You want to change. Coming to Christ is coming to the true bread of life that can finally fill you up. The true living water that will finally quench your thirst. Don't you see that? But you have to see it this way, to really want to grow, to really want this desire. You have to see that he became the most spiritually famished and spiritually thirsty man that has ever lived for you. For you. He felt real hunger as he lived, hand to mouth, as he fasted in the desert, as he thirsted on the cross. But that compares nothing to the moment when God forgot him on the cross. No one's ever felt a more spiritually empty belly or spiritually parched throat than when Jesus hung on the cross and God had forsaken him in that moment. He became absolutely famished for you. And the more you see that and pray that and work that into your heart, it will create that desire for you to hunger for him and his righteousness as well. The more you drink from Christ and his spiritual poverty for you, pray it into your heart, as I said, the more you realize your own need and your own hunger and your own thirst, the more you want Christ. But there's a tension. Because in this life, in the here and now, you'll never be fully satisfied. You, you can't. Because the ongoing remaining presence of sin in our flesh, we battle, we still have desires and hungers that go elsewhere. Do you see why this beatitude is the one of fullness, satisfaction, and blessedness? You don't need to earn your satisfaction by staying on the st stage of life Achieving into your late 70s like the stones. You don't need to justify your existence. You never need to earn God's favor or think he's abandoned you when you fail. This is the filling up of this beatitude. No, what do we do? You live in the daily tension of yes, mourning your poverty, yes, feeling your hunger, yes, acknowledging your sin, and then feeding on Christ over and over and 
over again until that day when he comes back and we are, then we will be finally full. The tension will be gone. The tension will be gone. You can get satisfaction. It comes from the bread of life. It comes from the living water. His name is Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a comprehensive perfection and holiness you desire from us. And yet we know, yet we see, yet we examine hungers for other things in our life. Hungers that are many times for good things. But Lord Jesus, unless we hunger and, and thirst for righteousness, your righteousness above all else, we will never find true satisfaction. We will never find true peace. Because it's in that hungering and thirsting for what we cannot produce that we find the answer in Jesus Christ. And so Christ, fill us up today. Christ, make us full today. Christ, let us experience your goodness applied to us. Second side of that coin, again today, in a way we never have. And let us let go our achieving to earn something. Let us receive it from you. And in that, Lord Jesus, have a passion and desire to pursue you all the more. Bless us today, I pray. Give us that hunger and thirst spirit. Christ, name we pray. Amen.